Last time I was with you, we were looking at this idea, a biblical idea that is a reality, of what it is to be new in Christ. Now that you are new, we looked at three things that we were to do. Because we are new in Christ, we are to lay aside the old self, the former manner of life, the sinful tendencies, things that we once practiced. Second thing we were to do is to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And the last thing we were told to do in the scripture is to put on the new self. And the new self is made in the likeness of God, in holiness and righteousness of truth. Now when we come to the realization of who we are in Christ, it ought to determine how we live in Christ. How we live on this side of eternity. And today's passage will highlight this truth. Because everything that was taught in verses 17 to 24 is now to be applied. As we look at verses 25 to 5-2. Let's read our text. The title of the message is, Living the New Life. It's on page 1172 in your pew Bible if you're not already there. Let's begin at verse 25. Hear the word of God. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. But rather, he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as it is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander Be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. I'm sure you might have heard of the term a ripple effect. When we think of a ripple effect, most times we think of throwing a pebble or a rock into a lake, and then we see ripples. What exactly do we mean by a ripple effect in the body of Christ? Well, each situation and each action can produce an effect and affect others, which would spread to produce other effects. So there is a cause and effect with our actions in the Christian life, for ourselves and for the body of Christ, for others. Now, the author's intent is to show us how to live this new life as members of the body of Christ and how our actions will affect one another, either positively or negatively. Instructions are given on how to live this Christian life, and we're going to look at five areas of life with instructions on how to respond and how not to respond. In addition, the text serves as a warning. 
What happens when we go back to the old life in Christ? There are two consequences. We can, by our actions, give Satan an opportunity to infiltrate the congregation and disrupt the unity that the Holy Spirit has brought and undermine God's work. And also, when we are callous with speech and we harbor bitterness and maybe resentment and unforgiveness, we can, we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Both results are not fitting, and both results happen when we go back to the old way of life. Because our ultimate motivation is found in verses five, chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. The passage finds its resolve there. Ultimate motive in living this new life in Christ is to be imitators of God. And we will create harmony. And all these ripple effects will have a positive impact. And we will build one another up. And this is also pleasing. A pleasing aroma and sacrifice to God. Let's begin the first area of life at verse 25. We begin. And we're told here not to lie, but tell the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Now, speak truth each one of you to his neighbor is a direct quote from Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. And if you're like me and you see that here, why is Paul quoting that? Well, let me just give you a little context Read from the ESV. This, this scripture, Zechariah 8, 16 and, and 17, speaks about, the, the writer writes, Speak true to one another. And it speaks about not devising evil in your hearts against one another. Do not love false oaths. oaths and all these things I hate. So lying and falsehood the Lord hates. And we know that. We have that in other portions of scripture as well. But why is he quoting it here, Paul? Well, I have good insight from a biblical commentator, Simon Austin. And quote, The fact that this is now directed to the new people of God, who have been made into one body, shows the significance and importance of right behavior for the church, God's New Testament people. Speaking truthfully to one another is a sign that we are part of the new community of God's people anticipated in the Old Testament, as we saw in chapter 3, but now made known to us through the apostles and prophets. Our truthfulness to one another marks us out as part of God's new end-time community. Now, we must understand in the immediate context, these pagan Gentiles were not the most ethical or moral people. They're coming out of paganism, and they're now part of the body of Christ, joined with the Jews. And many of them had brought this practice of lying, which was very common. It's common today in our land as well. But it was common. In a parallel exhortation, we see Paul give the Colossians. In Colossians 3, 9 and 10, he says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, which is renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now, this word for falsehood is pseudos. And this word can can imply being deceptive in some way or another to one another. Intentionally falsifying something. And lying can take on different forms. 
exaggerations, adding fabrications to something that's already true, making promises you can't keep, making promises you know you will not keep, betraying confidence and also making excuses. So we see that, therefore, laying aside this lying, this falsehood, we ought to speak truth to one another with the neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Well, in this context, it is all of us here. It is the body of Christ. Members of God, unified temple, being built up and growing together in Jesus Christ, as Christ is the head. The priority of speaking truth, as this text speaks about our relations here in the body of Christ. We'll look at texts in in Ephesians that speak of our relationship outside the body. But this speaks of inside the body and the priority of speaking truth. Because Christians, whether we be in the church or outside the church, should be known for truth. Because we've been reconciled to Jesus Christ, who is the truth. We read day in and day out and come here and look at the word of God, the transforming power, which is the word of truth, John 17, 17. And also we have the spirit, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit in us, John 14, 17. So truth should be emblematic to a Christian. And we were told in verse 14 that we are to speak the truth in love. Now, this is something we must do, and it should never be our intent to hurt anybody with the truth, but truth can hurt. I'll give you the quote we looked at last time, Warren Worsby. Love without truth is hypocrisy, and truth without love is brutality. It should never be our intent to wound anyone. But as truth can hurt, we must understand when we speak truth to one another, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 27, 6. And truth has become such a novelty in our culture. We are constantly barraged with lies day in and day out from the world. And we are not the world. We are not supposed to think like the world. We are not supposed to thereby live by the world. Constantly barraged. Created crises. False statistics. Scare tactics to advance political causes. It is staggering what we're seeing. Absolutely amazing. What I find remarkable is so many in positions of power who constantly lie demand that you tell the truth. And many of them, many of them demand obedience for you to their lies. I think the body of Christ is now waking up and I'm Hoping this is the case, and I hope many will realize this. But this is what we are to guard against. We are to guard against the lies of the world coming into us and affecting one another. We are to speak truth to one another. We do not want to swallow the lies of the culture. And that's why in verse 23 we are told to renew, be renewed in the spirit of our minds. This is essential. We must continue to do this. Speaking truth to one another ought to form a trust to one another, and it's essential in maintaining unity. Everything that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, is now undergirded here in this passage, because the consequences of not following the new, going to the old, will cause disunity. 
The second area of life. We are to go in verse 26 from uncontrolled ang anger. Implicit here is the self-control of the new self. Let me read it for you. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. That's verse 27. We'll look at that in a minute as well. But be angry and do not sin. That's another quote from the Old Testament. That's Psalm 4.4. 4. Now, anger is not something that's necessarily a sin. But anger can be used as a gateway for sin. We must understand, just because we are new in Christ does not divorce us of the reality and the emotion of anger. But anger has to be managed. It's about anger management. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. James 1, 19 and 20. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Just like God, we ought to be slow to anger. But in comparison to human anger, God's anger is just. God's anger is righteous because of God's disposition of holiness. And God's anger is upon his enemies. God's anger will be upon all those who have sinned and have not received the remedy for sin, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you are guilty of sin, you have sinned against God. And it's a crime worthy of eternal punishment. Is God's anger upon you? Is his wrath upon you? Is God angry with you today? We hear a lot about home testing. It's a very easy test you can take. You could find out today if God is angry with you. And this is not something that we ought to neglect. John 3.36. This is how we can find this out. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath, the anger of God, remains upon him. See here, belief and obey, to commit your trust to Jesus Christ. If you've not done this yet, the anger of God is upon you. You've come up positive, and you can, there is a remedy and there is a solution. We'll, we'll talk about that as well. It's the greatest problem you will ever have, and you must get the right diagnosis. There is a solution. There is a cure. You know, there is something called latrophobia. It's a phobia for people going to doctors. People do not like to go to doctors for several reasons, but one of the reasons probably is they don't want to go to a doctor to see the reality if something is actually wrong. I heard this about a woman last week. She neglected going to the doctor, and the results were not good. That is not the case here today. We know the solution to God's anger. If that's you, we'll have an opportunity. See, see an elder after service if that's you here today. And we could explain that further. But there is a solution to this cure. Just like there is the anger of God, there is the loving kindness and mercy of God. This anger can be cured from you, turned away from you. Jesus Christ is the wrath bearer. The anger goes somewhere. It's either going to you, the wrath of God, or you, 
What's substituted? It's a substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. He is the answer. This is what separates all religion from biblical Christianity. That Christ and Christ alone took away your sins. If you have not surrendered your life, please do so, so the wrath of God will be satisfied. Now we must consider that while God's anger is just, most often human anger, our anger, be angry and do not sin, is most often possibly selfish anger. It's sinful. This is what the verse is driving at, the negative consequences of our anger. Some escalations and consequences can be manifested in sinful resentment. And anger can defile our minds and cause us to not respond the way we ought to respond in the new self. We can be inappropriate in our responses and ungodly in our responses because of anger. Sometimes we may get angry, but don't let the, the anger, the sun go down in your anger. We must shut that stove. It's like the water boiling. Before it boils, just shut the stove down. It's about anger management. Now, you may be angry. You're not to sin. And do not let the sun go down in your anger. Proverbs, fools vent their anger, but the wise quietly hold it back. So certainly, anger could be detrimental in a personal defilement, certainly. But anger could easily sow discord in the body of Christ. And this is the unity that we are called to preserve, we saw already. But if anger is not managed, the negative consequence could be all the above. But also, what the text is telling us here is, do not give the devil an opportunity. Do not give him a foothold, as it says in the, new, in the NIV. Leaving the door open for Satan. You give Satan an inch, he will take a yard. It is a true thing. It is a true statement. So we ought to close the door entirely on Satan. Now, Satan can disturb our thoughts, our hearts, our words, our actions. And this, this anger, uncontrolled, can be a big problem for our lives individually and certainly for the body of Christ. We do not want to give Satan an opportunity by carrying maybe sinful resentments, by carrying grudges, by carrying unforgiveness against one another. But there is a flip side to anger. There's something called righteous indignation. Anger can have a place in your life, Christian, depending on its motive and purpose. Now, is Paul sanctioning here righteous indignation? Probably not, as the context doesn't speak about that. But anger can be a motivational tool for unrighteousness. We consider Jesus' righteous indignation in Matthew 21, 12 and 13. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. That is one of the more popular examples of righteous indignation in the New Testament. Well, now that you're in the new self, there may be things that you are angry about today that you weren't angry about before you were saved. There is now maybe some things that now have come your way I consider a situation by myself 
There was a situation a long time ago, probably September of 2001, I spoke to a, he's now a pastor in Bay Ridge. Uh, he was not a pastor then. He ran a great men's Bible study. And I was new in the faith. And I said, I love Jesus. I, I'm walking with the Lord. I, I don't get this whole abortion thing. And he told me, you will. You will. And he was right. We did. It was about eight years ago, myself and Gloria, we went with this uh, amazing brother in the Lord, Stuart Migden. He produced a movie, uh, produced a movie about abortion. It's called Voiceless. Great movie. If you haven't seen it, see it. But he went down to an abortion clinic. We went with him in Trenton. This would be a start of a ministry, an abortion ministry. Now, my motivation for going down there was a little bit of righteous indignation. Not at the people. Not to yell and scream and hold signs at the people. No. But there was also a sadness. There's also the obligation. But that anger for me caused us to go down there. And lo and behold, that day a life was saved. This this woman, Elsie and Gloria, spoke to this woman, and this woman kept the baby. And the baby is now alive and well, and they are both, well, the mother is following the Lord. So anger can cause a righteous motivation. Anger can cause us to look at ourselves as well, not just the world. A righteous indignation. Okay. Maybe the Pregnancy Care Center is something maybe you could help out with. Maybe there's a ministry. Maybe there's something in this world that needs to be changed, that God has commanded. And maybe you're upset about it, but don't, don't let the anger control you in such a way where it's defiling you. Maybe use for a righteous indignation. Okay. But again, the anger could also be self-centered, and that's what we are to guard about. If you ever find yourself replaying an encounter with someone in the body of Christ, someone who hurt you, and if there's resentment and unforgiveness, this is where the text is driving at. You must do something about that. Because anger can be like a corrosive acid, eating away at your insides. That's why we also ought to be militant in taking thoughts captive, not to give Satan a foothold. And that goes back to, re- to the renewing in the spirit of our minds. The third area of life is found in verse 28. That we are to no longer steal, but labor honestly. Now, stealing was very prominent in that pagan culture as well. It's also prominent in our culture. The verse says this, 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Different forms of stealing. It's deceiving someone. Taking things ultimately do not, that not, do not belong to you. It's a form of embezzlement, fraud. Interesting enough, we see here in these three verses, two commandments. Actually, these three verses here, two commandments. Both for pagans and both for Jews in the body of Christ. Now, these pagans would have not probably known, maybe they didn't know these ten commandments. The Jews would have known this, but the pagans would have had the law. On their hearts. As a parenthetical note, as we see these two commandments, don't steal. Don't lie. Do you need the Holy Spirit to know this? The answer is no. But environment can cause the conscience to be seared. You see, even when the evolutionist and the pagan and the secular humanist and the atheist 
teach their children. And many of us here, before we came to Jesus Christ, when you taught your children, you taught them, Susie, be a good girl. Don't lie. Johnny, be a good boy. Don't steal. On what basis does anyone have morality if it's not for these word of God and the law of God written on the, the conscience? You know, as evolution continues to be taught in government schools, it continues to subvert and pervert the logic of many children's minds. The question has to be asked, this is a parenthetical note, but I think we should address it. How in the world can an evolution adhere, evolutionist adhere to morality? How do they believe the concept of right and wrong? Apart from biblical creation, morality has no justification. A quote from Christian philosopher Greg Bonson. What does the unbeliever, a person who rejects the biblical God, mean by good? Or by what standard does the unbeliever determine what counts as good? So that evil is accordingly defined or identified. What are the presuppositions, the terms of which an, the unbeliever makes any moral judgments whatsoever? Although unbelievers may have a classification as good or evil, they do not have an ultimate foundation for defining what is good and evil. And even though most people will not acknowledge it, the moralities and rules in America are derived from biblical principles. Whether people argue or not, because the law is written on the conscience of all men, and the foundation of this country is to a large extent, derived from the word of God. Now, the unbeliever has the word in their conscience. Where do we, meet? Where do we get that? Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. This is the word of God. But the conscience can get deprogrammed. And the conscience can get seared. These pagan Gentiles were probably blinded by coming out of the old way of life into this new way of life. And Paul says, no, there is a new and better way. No longer steal, but labor honestly with the motivation that you will have something to share with one who has need. Derivative of the new self and imitators of Christ is helping those in need. This text here, when you put on the new self, you are going to become more Christ-centered and consequently more others-centered as well. In doing so, you will f- could share the fruits of your labor. And God uses the church. God uses the church, the Lord's hands and feet, to reach out and help, but especially our own, especially those in the household of faith. We see this in Acts, in 2, 44 and 45. We see this voluntary help for those in the body. And we also see it in Acts eleven twenty nine and 30. I won't read that for you. You could read that when you go home. But generosity and help ought to be a Christian virtue. Consider 1 John 3.17, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? We are to help one another. 
But this is voluntary. And those in the church will help one another by giving what is theirs, not stealing. But we have something that has made its way into the church, and we've spoken about it from this pulpit. And if, you have, if you're on the fence about it, I want to speak about it again. There's been a conflict with helping those with the Marxist agenda. Understand something. Marxism is incompatible with biblical Christianity because Marxism is godless. We'll review it again. The first requisite of the happiness of the people is the abolition of religion. Marx admitted, my object in life is to dethrone God and destroy capitalism. This is Karl Marx. This is what many in the body of Christ are bringing in. And in Marxism, government takes the place of God. That's a violation of the first commandment as well. Another one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Marxism is a system of thievery. It's a philosophy. You can call it what you want. It's a system of thievery because it's the redistribution of wealth mandated by Marxism. It destroys accountability. It destroys biblical work ethic that we see in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. You shall not steal, Deuteronomy 5, 19, is meaningless if there's no private property. This is biblical Christianity. That's that's where we're going with this. We're not concerned with what the world is doing and the the whims and ways of man. The Bible honors work and teaches that individuals are responsible to work if you can work. If you're sick, if you have a disability, that's understandable. But if you can work... You should work because if you are unwilling, you should not eat. There is 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Let's consider Jesus' parable. In Matthew 25, 14-30, the parable of the talents clearly teaches our, it's our responsibility to serve God with our own resources. And that's incompatible with Marxism. So if you're still on the fence and you're not sure and you support Marxism, you support stealing. By taking some, someone else's goods, that's a form of covetousness. And this is a covetous culture. Make no mistake. That's why we are to speak the truth and love one another. That is to help one another. Things may get heated if you see someone in the body. And sometimes you're not to say anything. You really need the Lord's direction. But it leads us to the fourth area of life. And that's found in verse 29. The speech of the new self. From harmful to helpful speech. Let's read the verse. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Unwholesome word could be a rotten word, putrid, filthy. It's a word that is not befitting and edifying. In general, it can be slander. It could be cursing. It could be obscenity. It could also be gossip. It could also be abusive language. And this type of speech is not in step of the new self, and it will defile us, but also will cause the ripples in the body of Christ to cause disunity. Consider Jesus' words in, in Matthew 15, 11. It is not what enters the mouth that defiles the person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles the person. 
Our words here are meant to have an effect. Remember the rock throwing it in, the ripples. Our words are to build, to build one another in the body of Christ. And we see here that the words should be timely, appropriate, good for education, according to the need of the moment, a timely, a wise word, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So timely, we will know what to say. The more you pray, the more closer you get to God. I do believe the Holy Spirit gives you wisdom on how to approach the situation. And sometimes do not say anything. I think that comes with, with God's guidance. And graceful. Graceful is not condemning. Remember, speaking the truth in love is to build one another. Speaking the truth in love is to not hurt the person, but help the person. So, we also hear our words should be truthful outside the body of Christ. Our grace, our speech should always be filled with grace, seasoned with salt, Colossians. But outside as well as inside. And it's to be edifying. And speech is powerful. Make no mistake. Some people say, you can create your own reality with speech. And we laugh at that. Some of that, there's truth to that. You want to sow discord in the body? You can do it with your speech. You want to build one another up in the body? You can do that as well with your speech. And actions as well. Because the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 12, 18. Now, Speech and speaking about the ripples can cause godliness or ungodliness. Why don't you consider 2 Timothy 2, 16 and 17. And Paul tells Timothy, avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them were Hymenaeus and Philetus. So we are to speak what is good for building. And the tongue is often a neglected and speech neglected area in life. We're awfully careless sometimes with our mouths, with our speech. It's something that we should really focus on. And after, after looking at this text, myself as well, it's not, uh, I'm not preaching to you, myself also. Because speech is indicative of the heart, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now let's take a moment and look clearly at speech and it is neglected and death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits proverbs 18:21 but i want to just look at something in james let's look at the tongue let's look at the characteristics the tongue is a small part of the body yet it boasts of great things And James compares this to a forest, a forest fire. See how great a forest is set aflame by small fire. This is in James chapter 3, and the entirety of that chapter you can look at, uh, at least till 12. But just a couple of points. It defiles our entire body. The tongue can defile your entire body. And the tongue needs to be tamed, and he compares it to animals and beasts, that they're tamed, but... We can't tame this thing called the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and we curse men. Now, whoever restrains his word. So we cannot, it's very difficult to tame the tongue, but with the power of the Holy Spirit, we must tame the tongue. 
Because in Proverbs 17, verse 27, whoever restrains his words has knowledge. But he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. This is where wisdom comes into play. Now, the heart and the words want to be pleasing to God. And I think of David in Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. May our words be pleasing. May our actions be pleasing. But we see a consequence of going back and something that is displeasing to God in verse 30. Now, you can make the application for the the words that we speak can grieve the Holy Spirit. But I believe all the above, going back in the old self, all the passages we just looked at, can also grieve the Holy Spirit. We look at verse 30, the second consequence on the negative side of things. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is another reference to the Old Testament. Isaiah 63.10. And we see throughout the Old Testament, God was often angered with Israel, but he's also grieved by their disobedience. So I think that these sinful patterns that we all looked at thus far, you have the, the old and the new. And going back to the old certainly can give Satan a foothold, a negative ripple, a negative consequence, an opportunity to disrupt the unity. And here we see we can grieve the Spirit of God, who is the architect of the unity as well. And it also tells us that the Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Spirit is, can be grieved. And we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit will never leave us nor forsake us, as Christ and the Father will never. But I think we can disrupt our fellowship when we grieve the Spirit of God with God and with one another. So... We see the fifth area of life here. We are to go from bitterness of the old self to kindness and forgiveness of the new self. Verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness, wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. That's the negative. That's the old. To the positive new. Verse 32. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, which can mean compassionate. Forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now we looked at the, the anger. Very often it's not God-centered or righteous. It's often self-centered. And we see the reactions here in verse 31. Let me just define some of them for you. And it can be detrimental not only to yourself, again but to the body of Christ. There's a quote. I don't know who who created this, but bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And certainly if it's not managed, it can cloud our judgment as well. And we're not going to have the responses of the new self, the Christ-like attitude and heart. So clamor can be a harsh word that can make you cringe. Malice is a word that has wicked intentions behind it. And slander, a false or malicious statement with the intent or reputa- to hurt someone's reputation, to hurt someone's character. Now, 
instead of flying into rage with harsh and angry words, we ought to respond not that way, but in the new self. And we are the characteristics here we seeing, or even fruits of the Spirit, a kindness. We are to employ forgiveness to one another. And forgiveness here, as we see, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew 18. And I want to spend a little time on forgiveness. Because forgiveness is central to Christianity. Forgiveness is something that we look at here as we examine this vertical forgiveness between God and each one of us and how it translates horizontally. We must understand our own forgiveness and just as the wrath of God has been averted from us for the sacrificial scapegoat of Christ Jesus the Messiah, there are others here that have also experienced God's forgiveness. We see a good example. Let's turn. You're there already. Matthew 18, 21 to 31. I was going to just give you a description, but I want you to see the words of Jesus Christ. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one owed him 10,000 talents, was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave... Verse 26, fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him and said, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him, of, forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he, the one who experienced the forgiveness, was unwilling. And he went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger and handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each one of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now forgiveness, there are a lot of nuances when it comes to forgiveness. And I don't have the time and the message is not about forgiveness. 
But there is a couple of things that we must consider. There are those in the body of Christ that will play on your forgiveness. They will try to manipulate you and they will try to persuade you with insincerity. When it comes to forgiveness, as we see, you must forgive as you've been forgiven. However, there are a couple of things that we must come to know. If you're wronged by someone and they do not acknowledge that, you still must forgive them. But if they do not change, you have the authority and right to distance yourself and not harbor animosity if they are a brother and sister in Christ. If they are a brother and sister in Christ and that's the case, you should go to them or they should go to you. If that doesn't work in the fashion of Matthew 18, and we've told you this before, you come to the elders. Now, Forgiveness still stands if the reconciliation has been broken down. There are times, sometimes, when people separate. Or a relationship can be severed. But you must not harbor the animosity if they're forgiven of the Lord. It's very important, and maybe we'll go over forgiveness in the future. So, let's move on. Colossians 3.13. We are also, Paul tells the Colossians, to bear with one another... If one has a complaint with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, again, Paul says, so you must forgive. Okay, I think we have covered that. All right, vengeance. Vengeance goes to God. What about those who are not in the body and have done something towards you? Can you defend yourself? There are implications and legal processes you can take, certainly. But let's consider Paul's words. Now, in 2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander the coppersmith. I don't know, was he a Christian? Don't think he was a Christian. And what was Paul's reaction? He did something very wrong to Paul. I'm going to read it to you. Alexander the coppersmith, Paul says, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him. So vengeance is the Lord's. So there are legal implications. We've gone far in forgiveness. I felt it in my heart to speak that, and we did. Now we conclude. The concluding verses in 5, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. We see where this text finds its resolve. There is a chapter break, but that's not in the original uh, writings, the original scriptures. This including exhortation for me and you is to imitate God. And if we're in the old self, that's not going to happen. But if we're living the new life, we will be God-like. And it's the only time we see in the Bible where it gives you this command to imitate God. Christians are called out to live their identity by li- imitating God. Now we see the kindness, the compassion. We see that we're not to lie, not to steal. And certainly, obeying all the commands, being obedient, you will imitate God. You will reflect the image of Christ in the new self. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is... The- in the, we have been made in the likeness of God, in holiness, in righteousness, in truth, when we put on the new self. But one of the things that we are to do to imitate God, as we saw here, is forgiveness, absolutely. But you can never go too far as talking about imitating God without showing love. 
Love is crucial. Let's read the text. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. As children, Zachary will imitate his father, his mother. As the children here will imitate their parents. We are to be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, we are the offspring of God. We do this by walking as Christ walked. Now, understand, there is no perfection on this side of eternity. But there should be a progress. There should be a growing as the Spirit is in us. And the choices that we make will help us grow. Consider 1 John 2.6. The one who says that he abides in him ought to himself to walk in the same manner As he walked. Now, to walk in love, we must understand that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. This is not walking in love and out of duty and obligation. And sometimes that can happen and the choices that are to be made. But it is very much a decreasing so Christ may increase. This will happen. Love will come. When you're in the new self, because the new self is God-centered, and when you're God-centered, you will be others-centered. So we see that the Spirit works to conform us. And we see this wording here as Christ gave himself up for us as an offering, as a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma. We see Christ's self-sacrificial act. The love of God in the crucifixion of Christ was self-sacrificial, an act of love. And it was a fragrant offering, pleasing to God. We see a lot of offerings in the Old Testament. But Hebrews 7, 10, let me just read one. In Leviticus, one of the first offerings we see, Then he shall tear by his wings, but not sever it. And the priest, speaking about a priest, shall offer up in smoke, on the altar, on the wood, which is on the fire. This is a burnt offering, the first one in Leviticus. As an offering by fire, and this was a soothing aroma to our Lord. A truly acceptable sacrifice and aroma to our Lord, and may I say the last and final sacrifice was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. An offering as a fragrant aroma, Paul writes in Romans 8.3, That what the law could not do weak as it was in the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, Christ was the last and final offering. And Hebrews 10, 12, but he, speaking of Christ, having offered one sacrifice for the sins of all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So, Comparing our love for God and characterized in the scriptures, our love for God is obedience. That's an indication of your love for God and love for one another's. The self-sacrificial love can be a fragrant offering. And we see the self-sacrificial love commanded by Jesus in John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you. 
that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. But I think you can make the sacrifice that we are to do. We also can do a sacrifice. But aren't all the sacrifices over? Paul tells us in Romans 12.1 that our lives can be a sacrifice to God as a fragrant offering. I'll read it to you. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your life, a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Our lives are to be pleasing and holy to God. When we are in the new self, living the new life, it will be pleasing to God. It will be prosperous for the body. It will be prosperous for us. Now we conclude. Christian, you were made new, so be new in thought, word, and deed, because our actions have an effect on our life with, with the Lord and one another. Your actions have a ripple effect. could be positive, could be negative. Our actions can give Satan an opportunity. Our actions can grieve the Holy Spirit. But our actions can be beneficial and achieve a pleasing, sacrificial aroma to God. And we'll have a positive ripple effect on each and every one of us here. As we become imitators of God, this will translate into a lifestyle. The Christian lifestyle. There's no perfection on this side of eternity. But may we pursue this and pursue progress. And may we lay aside the former manner of life and the old self. So Christian, now that you are new, be new. Let's pray. Father God, we give thanks for this passage, Lord. We give thanks, Lord, that you have instructed us on how. How we can live this life, Lord. How we are to please you, Lord. How we are to interact with one another. How we are to be the body of Christ. How we are to imitate God. Oh, Lord, we feel so inadequate. Help us in this, in this process, Lord. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. And Father, we thank you for who we are in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.